Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. This morning as we continue our series, Building Blocks, we're going to look at the first sermon in church history. And full disclosure, uh, the Apostle Peter's first sermon in 33 AD was a little better than my first sermon in 2012 AD. But as we saw last week, Acts begins with Christ giving a commission to the 120 followers who are still with him, 40 days after the resurrection. And in a weird way, uh, chapter 1 plays out like a scene of out of Mission Impossible. Uh, generally, in the beginning of those films, uh, Tom Cruise's character receives a secret message which outlines his assignment. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is blank. And then they relay some sort of crazy, borderline, impossible mission, hence the name of the movies, and then the mission ends in the same way. This tape, this disc, this device will self-destruct in 10 seconds. Good look. Good luck. And so Jesus does something similar. Jesus says, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is sharing the gospel around the world. Start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The only difference is in Acts 1, the message doesn't self-destruct, but the Messiah does float away on a cloud. So kind of the same thing. Now, if you're a fan of alliteration, you could say Acts chapter 1 details the mission of the church, and Acts chapter 2 details the message of the church. Or you could say in Acts 1, Christ gave marching orders, and in Acts 2, his followers started marching. Now, because we're going to cover a lot of of ground, we're going to jump right in and, and start with verse 1. Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. Remember, Christ commanded them to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, but his first command was, wait. Go to Jerusalem and and wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Wait to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Wait before you go out and and start sharing the gospel. And and right off the bat, we can see a, a clear application for the modern day church. They go and they find a, a quiet place and they, they wait and for 10 days they pray. And then for 10 minutes Peter preaches and 3,000 were saved. And today we seem to have that, that turned around a little bit. Or we preach for 10 days and pray for 10 minutes and we're ecstatic if three people are saved. And so, so I want you to see before we get too far down the road this morning, if you're a, a type A goal-oriented, busybody like your pastor, please don't miss that when you walk, when you run to the task before consulting the task master, you can walk into dangerous territory where your life is filled with lots of religious activity and very little eternal significance. When you slip into patterns where you're working for God and not with God, and you move slightly off track, You'll experience limited success and all the while your spiritual tank will run down to empty and you'll burn out. And so don't paddle your boat upstream. Stop working against 
the current. Instead, follow the examples of the disciples before you pour yourself out in the service of others. Plug yourself in to the presence of God. So verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. This was not a, a gentle breeze. This was a hurricane, tornado-level wind. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirits gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in, Jer in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And so the Holy Spirit pours out on the room that the disciples were in. And then in short order, after the Spirit enters the room, he moved into the marketplace. And verse 5 says that at Pentecost that many devout men from every nation under heaven were present. By the first century, many Jews were living away from Jerusalem. They were spread all across the ancient world. And as they raised their families in different cultures, they adopted different languages and embraced different customs. But Pentecost was one of those annual celebrations, 50 days after Passover, which is still one of the high holidays on the Jewish calendar. And many of them would make their way back to the holy city. And so when the disciples spill out in the street and begin claiming the, proclaiming the gospel in a variety of languages, they were speaking to every person in the crowd in their own language. And, and verse 6 says this left them bewildered. They, they were surprised. They were shocked. They were mystified. They were flabbergasted, if you will. You know, in Acts 4, we'll, we'll get here in a, in a, in a few weeks, but, but Peter and John stand before the, the Sanhedrin, and the religious leaders were astonished by the boldness of their proclamation because they had sized them up as uneducated common men. Again, the, the 12 apostles were not five-star prospects. They were small-town, blue-collar hayseeds, and, and suddenly they're standing in the middle of Jerusalem speaking confidently in multiple languages like they've spent the last decade studying Rosetta Stone. And so just try to imagine for a moment what it would be like if I stepped behind this pulpit and preached for 40 minutes in perfect Mandarin or perfect German or perfect French. You wouldn't understand it, but you'd probably be a little impressed and a little confused, right? Well, this is where the crowd was at. They were amazed, but they had questions too. Verse 7 says they were astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Like, wait a second, how are these Galileans doing this? What is going on? And then if you skip down to verses 12 and 13, you see one prominent theory. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. 
So some were, were looking for meaning. What is happening? How can we explain it? And others seize the opportunity for mocking. Oh, I see what's going on. These guys are already drunk. In his commentary on the book of Acts, John Calvin wrote, There's nothing, no matter how full of wonder, that may not be turned into a joke by men and women who are indifferent to God. Just as the Father had promised, just as the Son had foretold, the Spirit had come, and He was beginning the process of pouring Himself out on every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and yet some were standing off to the side saying, wow, they're obviously plastered right now. That's the only explanation. This isn't a miracle. This is public drunkenness. Which leads to another situation where Scripture is truly stranger than fiction. After some suggested the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a simple case of Pentecost Day drinking, Peter was forced to make a clarification. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And so we should just appreciate for a moment that the first words of the first sermon in the first church were this. Peter stood up, cleared his throat, and said, Ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention, please? These people are not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Then he proceeds to explain what actually was happening. It says in verse 16, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above. And in signs on earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. And the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. More than likely, you have a, a footnote in your Bible, but if not, Peter was quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. We won't go through all of it because we want to get to the heart of, of Peter's sermon, but we should recognize one difference between Joel 2 and Acts 2. In Joel 2, 29... It says, even on the male servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And then in Acts 2.18, it says essentially the same thing. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. But Peter adds, and they shall prophesy. And you may be thinking, doesn't Moses say in Deuteronomy 4 that we shouldn't add or subtract 
from God's word? Why is Peter adding another phrase? And that's a good question that I'm glad you asked. First of all, we should remember that all of this is taking place in a unique chapter of, of church history. The ministry of the apostles was during a time where God used a multitude of signs and wonders to introduce the world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God was active in every miracle and influential over every word. So Peter was not speaking out of turn. And also, we should recognize that Pentecost marked the beginning of a new era in God's redemptive history. In Joel's day, there were only a handful of prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others were, were trusted with handling the words of God. But in Peter's day, after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, every Christ follower became a prophet. And so Peter echoes Joel in verse 14 when he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. But in verse 18, he adds, even your male and female servants will prophesy. So whether you are a beloved son who's in line for the father's inheritance, or you're a lowly servant who cleans the father's house, if you're in Christ, you're a prophet. You're called to be a witness. And Peter also says that the Spirit will be poured out on, on all flesh. But notice while the outpouring of the Spirit is unconditional, the offer of salvation is conditional. Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, the Spirit works all over the world, but the Spirit only rests on those who call on the name of the Lord. And so after using the, the words of the prophet Joel to provide context for the events of Pentecost, Peter transitions to his primary point in the sermon. He shifts their attention back to Christ. And as he does, he, he presses into the most important question in life, which every person must eventually settle in their heart. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Will you trust him as your savior? Will you submit to him as your Lord or will you write him off? Will you cast him aside? Will you choose the world over him? And as we go with the gospel, we should remember Peter's example because many who are apart from God would always prefer getting lost in the weeds of religious discussion than dealing with that pressing question. Now you say to a friend or a co-worker, what will you do with Jesus? And they respond, what will you do with creation? Do you really believe that God created the entire cosmos in six days? You say, what will you do with Jesus? They say, well, what will you do with the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve broke one rule and, and God saddled all of humanity with, with sin. That doesn't really seem fair. You say, what will you do with Jesus? And they say, what will you do with the ark? Do you really believe that one man and his three sons built a giant boat that could house two animals of every kind and then God flooded the entire earth? You know, we see this happen in, in John chapter 4. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he He's revealing her, her, as he begins revealing her sordid relationship history and uncovering her brokenness. 
so that he can provide healing for her past and hope for her future, she takes him on a detour. When he starts to work his way towards something that's uncomfortable for her, she changes the subject, right? Jesus says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, I know because you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she counters with, I can see that you're a prophet. So let me ask you a question. The Jews worship in the temple, but the Samaritans worship on that mountain. What is the best place of worship? And Jesus addresses their question, and then he gets right back to the gospel. And Peter follows his example in Acts 2. They say, what in the world? Are these Galileans all drunk? What are they doing? Peter says, no, let me explain what's happening. Now let me tell you about Jesus. And if we can think practically for a moment, when we get sidetracked in gospel conversations, we need to follow that same formula. When they pull something out of left field, what about the dinosaurs? You answer their question respectfully, and then you get back to the gospel quickly. Let's read verses 22 through 36. This is is the heart of, of Peter's sermon, the meat of Peter's sermon. Starting in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made it known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God was sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, this is where he drops the hammer, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So if you throw in the the intro, where, where Peter takes them through Joel, and you read, verses 14 to 36, it probably takes you just three, four minutes or so to, to read them. And you may say, wow, pastor, you preach for 
30 to 40 minutes every week and the Apostle Peter preached for one-tenth of that and 3,000 were saved, maybe you should take note, apparently less is more. And I would counter with, with two thoughts. One, John Stott famously quipped, sermonettes make Christianettes. And also, while Peter did get right to the point, he, he certainly preached longer than four minutes. Luke gives us a, a summary, not a manuscript, but, but we can appreciate how much gospel ground is covered in 33 verses. Peter does what every preacher should strive to do. He illuminates Christ clearly and comprehensively. And before bringing that, that final charge that we see in verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified, Peter outlines how God the Father endorsed Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so let's look at two things that Peter points to. First, Christ was endorsed by God through his works, wonders, and signs. Verse 22 says, Jesus, a man attested you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. So in the Gospels, we read accounts of Christ performing several miracles. Among other things, he turned water into wine. He fed 4,000 and 5,000. He walked on water. He calmed a storm. He healed the sick and lame. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He cast out demons. But according to the Apostle John, he did much more. John 21, 25 says, There are also many other things that Christ did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books. D.A. Carson, reflecting on that verse writes, this Jesus, to whom John bears witness, is not only the obedient Son and the risen Lord, he's the incarnate Word, the one through whom the universe is created, and if all his deeds were described, the world would make a very small, inadequate library. So the, the New Testament, though it gives a, a vibrant portrait of Christ, only allows us to see his glory through a tiny keyhole. Because John tells us that Christ did more miracles than we know. He, he preached more sermons than we know. He told more parables than we know. He had more conversations than we know. He displayed more power than we know. He showed more compassion than we know. And on the cross, he suffered more than we know because he loves us more than we know. So God endorsed Christ through all these signs and, and wonders and, and works. And then second, Christ was endorsed by God through his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And we'll spend a little bit more time here. So Peter says that Christ was both delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the cross was both the result of God's sovereign plans and man's evil schemes. And now we can easily understand why the religious establishment wanted to get rid of Jesus. He was, he was gathering crowds. He was threatening their power and influence over the people. But we skate into more difficult theological territory when we consider the Father's role in the crucifixion. 
Because the skeptic can say, if God planned for Jesus to be killed, then all he did was link arms with lawless men and assist them in putting him to death. That doesn't seem like a great endorsement. But there's a major difference between the purposes of God and the purposes of man here. As John Piper explains, the difference between God's plan to crucify Jesus and Pilate's plan to crucify Jesus is that Pilate was rejecting him as a mere pretender, but God was honoring him as Savior of the world. God planned the death of Christ not to disown him, not to dishonor him, not to reject him, but to glorify him as the perfect, flawless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In Colossians 2, Paul writes, And you, speaking to us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, this legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so on the cross, Christ canceled the record of debt standing against you. Before you could enter the presence of the Holy God, a debt had to be paid. Even though sin was forgiven, a debt had to be paid. You think about it this way. If, if Lacey and I invite your family over for dinner, and your kids start to participate in whatever chaotic game that my children have invented and are playing that day, and your, one of your kids throws a toy through the living room window, We aren't sending you a bill for it. We aren't seeking legal action over it. You know, we understand accidents happen, but even if we forgive you immediately and we say, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal, don't worry about the damages, someone still has to pay for it. We're not going to just operate with a hole through a living room window. And maybe you would insist to pay for it or or maybe we would handle it or maybe insurance would cover it but either way the window would be replaced and someone would assume the debt and so in the same way god can't forgive our sin without atoning for our sin a debt had to be paid and the good news of the gospel is that christ paid it in full through his perfect sacrifice, the wrath of God was removed, the forgiveness of God was received, and fellowship with God was restored. And so at the end of 23, Peter says, You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter wants them to understand two things here. You killed him, they killed him, but God raised him up. And we'll get to the response of, of, of the crowd in, in a moment, but do you notice that they don't argue against the bodily resurrection of Christ? Remember, Pentecost took place 50 days after the crucifixion in the same city where Christ was killed. And if his body was still in the tomb, then we have to assume someone would have said, hold on a second, are you talking about Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah, he didn't overcome the grave. He, he's, he's still down there in Joseph's tomb. Let's, 
Let's take a field trip to the other side of town. We can see his body right now. But they didn't. And then if an empty tomb wasn't enough proof, you also have 120 men and women standing in the public square who are claiming to have seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. And so you can't explain that away as a, some sort of large-scale hallucination or long-planned, elaborate con that they couldn't deny it. Peter said, you killed him, and God raised him, and they had no answer. And then Peter continues in, in verses 25 through 31, he frames Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament prof prophecy, that, that he was the son of David. He was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the one that they had been waiting for, and yet they killed him, but God raised him up. And then in verse 33, Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, this, this event that you're seeing. He's poured out this. You are seeing and hearing. After finishing his work on earth, Christ ascended into heaven, where he sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he was highly exalted by the Father, where he received a name above every other name from the Father, where he traded the cross for a crown. And then we get back to verse 36, where Peter drops the hammer. He says, this is who Jesus was. This is what Jesus did. This is why you're guilty. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain, that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Insert mic drop here. As we mentioned last week, Christ promised in, in John 16 that the Spirit would come and the Spirit would convict the world of sin. And the Greek word for convict literally means to expose or, or cross-examine, that the Holy Spirit of God works like a trial lawyer to press you with the evidence, confront you with the inconsistencies until you finally consent to the truth. Which means we are not responsible for creating, fostering, or cultivating environments which manufacture a feeling of conviction. And if you've been in or around the church for a while, you, you probably know what I mean. I'm talking about marathon altar calls. I'm talking about music that swells the perfect moment during the pastor's invitation. I'm talking about manipulative tactics which incite panic and, and fear and sin confuse people running to the altar. I'm talking about standing before a large group of children at Vacation Bible School and saying, raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus and spend eternity with him, and then standing from the stage and counting heads and saying, we had 35 salvations at our Vacation Bible School. Several years ago, Lacey and I went to a, a funeral with four different ministers participating in the service. 
which is too many ministers, by the way. And, and the last preacher took his position as cleanup hitter very seriously. When he finished presenting the gospel, he called for a response, which is, is fine, but then he continued calling for a response, and he continued calling for a response. He kept saying, with every head bowed and every eye closed, who wants to add their name to the Lamb's Book of Life? Raise your hand right now. Who wants to ensure that they'll see their friend again in glory? Let me see your hand. Now is the time. And it went on and on and on. And at that point in my life, I'd been following Christ for over 20 years, but I almost rededicated my life hoping it would satisfy this brother's long-winded plea for just one more. I almost raised my hand and said, I'll be one more if we can go home. It's been two hours. Listen, church, at, at Pentecost, Peter didn't need any of those bells and whistles that we often see in the church today. He only needed the truth. Peter proclaimed the truth. The Spirit illuminated the truth. They were convicted by the truth. That's what we see in verse 37. So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and, and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. By the way, many other words. He said more than that little four-minute stretch. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 37 says they were cut to the heart. When Peter finished preaching, 3,000 men and women realized they were wrong about Jesus. Some of them wanted him to be a, a prophet who would call the Jews back to religion or a political messiah who would deliver them from the oppressive Roman Empire or a wise teacher who passed down principles for moral living. Others wrote him off completely. Some sort of charlatan or, or two-bit magician or simple charismatic man who briefly inspired a small revolution. But Peter showed them he wasn't those things. That he was actually the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they killed him. And we should clarify, when Peter says, you killed him, that charge certainly cut to the heart of those who were in attendance at Pentecost in 33 AD, but that charge extends well beyond that group. You see, if Christ went to the cross for the sins of all of humanity, then all of humanity bears responsibility for 
the death of Jesus. In other words, your sin and my sin sent him to Calvary. But the good news of the gospel is this. If you follow Peter's instructions, if you repent and believe in Christ, that horrifying reality becomes glorious truth. Yes, your sin drove him to the cross, but on the cross, he destroyed your sin. And so you can sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Um, Father, for the ways that it, it shapes us and molds us and, and corrects us. And As we examine Peter's sermon at, at Pentecost, we see that he didn't mince words and he, he comes right to the issue and says that Jesus Christ who was attested to us by many signs and, and miracles, was killed, buried, resurrected, and then he ascended to your right hand. Peter lays before us, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did, and then leaves the response to us. And Father, there's really only two responses that, that we can have here. If, if anyone in the room is apart from Christ, then obviously the response is that they need to repent and believe. If they feel convicted by this, if, if you're working in them and the Spirit's working in them and they feel cut to the heart, they need to repent and believe in Christ and, and rest in the truth that on the cross, he destroyed their sin. And for the rest of us, Lord, those of us who have heard the good news and submitted our lives to the good news, we need to go out and tell Hounds County the good news. So for those of us who are in Christ, the challenge and the charge is to join Peter in proclaiming this message. And Father, we, we admit that we need your help in that. So help us to be light. Help us to be salt. Help us to be a church that is proclaiming your truth in this community. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.